Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 6, Demonization. We are recording this in late summer 2020, and the time of the demonic is at hand in American political culture as we ramp up to the November presidential election. The Rolling Stones' 1969 hit, Sympathy for the Devil, features heavily in President Number 45's campaign rally playlists. One journalist for the Dallas Observer noted recently that the song is, quote, a little too right on the nose. In this context, it equates 45 to Jagger's devil, eloquent and ever-present, influencing human history. Well, we might admit that eloquent has gone out the window from the very beginning, but still the whole situation insinuates that it would be best to show true sympathy and taste and acknowledge 45's legitimate well-nigh messianic role in American politics. But of course, it is more than ironic to insist on sympathy as a signature value during this presidency when considering the deportations, immigrant bans, and the culture of venality and intimidation that have become its hallmarks. Demonization of brown and black immigrants, racial minorities, Muslims, civil servants, powerful women, and anti-fascists have all been central to the messaging of this administration from day one. But what does it really mean to demonize? Are we prisoners of the language of demonization, repeating its stock phrases mechanically rather than fluently? When one group, class, gender, race, religious affiliation, or form of sexuality becomes identified as the incarnation of evil, or its ready-made tool, demonizing is at work. This verb, to demonize, suggests an active, maybe even self-consciously deliberate attempt to describe or even unmask a kind of human being as a servant of evil, the devil, whether literally or more generally as the embodiment of negativity and the problematic. Eschatological struggle of the most dualistic sort dominates this election season. Today, we want to talk about the demonic as a thing that humans do to one another. More specifically, we want to explore how Christians have developed the political power of demonization from late antiquity to the present. I want to start with an example of demonization from early in the history of Christianity, the murder of the philosopher Hypatia in Alexandria, Egypt in the year 415 CE. Hypatia, a renowned Neoplatonic philosopher, astronomer, and mathematician, was brutally lynched by a mob of Christians. The site of her murder is suggestive for the central theme of this episode. It happened inside the Caesarion, once a temple important to imperial Roman religious rites, but recently purified and converted to a Christian church. And purified is, is definitely in scare quotes there. Hypatia was caught in the middle of a power struggle between the aggressive bishop of Alexandria, Cyril, and Orestes, the Roman prefect of Alexandria. Cyril had emerged as a bishop after a heated struggle for the office and had been at the center of anti-Semitic violence against the long-established Jewish community of Alexandria, resulting in murders, expulsions, and the outright land theft of synagogues for the purposes of Christianization. Orestes wanted some kind of oversight over the Christian foot soldiers, or parabolani, literally the reckless ones, who were stretcher bearers for those suffering from the deadly Justinian plagues. But they were more than just stretcher bearers. These guys were the shock troops who enforced Cyril's ascendant position in Alexandrian society and his violent purges of that city. It was among these foot soldiers of Christ that rumors took off regarding Hypatia's influence over Orestes, himself a Christian convert. The astrolabe that Hypatia used for mapping the celestial bodies morphed in these rumors from a scientific instrument to a satanic tool for influencing the body politic of Alexandria, dividing Orestes from his bishop, Cyril. Hypatia emerged as the perfect political demon, scapegoat for the soured relations between the Christian clergy and the Christian magistrate. And we all know the fate of scapegoats. On a March day during Lent in 415, while on her daily ride through the city, Hypatia was surrounded and sadistically murdered, and I'll let you look up the details for yourself. 
As I mentioned before, her last breath was probably drawn in a temple converted from a Roman polytheistic religion to rote Christian use, and thus it stands in a kind of context with the synagogues that Cyril had recently purified of Jewish traces. Again, many scare quotes. This was after Constantine, the emperor Constantine the Great, had begun the process of moving Christianity towards the center of respectability and political power in the Roman Empire. And at this moment, Christian bishops were playing hardball in the Roman Empire, asserting their influence by banning the older rival religions from public view. Hypatia herself was an adherent to the old gods, often called pagan, though the adjective is pejorative and of Christian origin. Not only rival religions suffered in Alexandria during this process of militant Christianization, but also ancient sources of knowledge. The Temple of Serapis, along with the legendary Great Library of Alexandria that adjoined it, were destroyed by Cyril's predecessor and uncle, the Bishop Theophilus, in 392 CE. The Temple of Serapis was beautiful, and the gods' blend of Hellenistic and Egyptian characteristics made him a symbol of the cosmopolitan richness and relative tolerance that characterized Alexandria. The Great Library was the main repository for classical Mediterranean learning, containing a collection whose mathematical equivalent, in terms of volumes contained, would only be matched a millennium later at the earliest. When the site of antique learning went up in flames, Hypatia remained as the living embodiment of the old culture of philosophy, and so we can see her denunciation as a demon as echoing the earlier attacks on the statue of Serapis who presided over the great temple of learning. And there's, a, there's a quotation attributed to Theophilus that I think sort of gets at this, you know, Theophilus meaning God lover, and it expresses the violent dynamics of Christianization in the empire at this time. And the quote goes like this, the cross is that which closed the temple of the idols and opened the churches and crowns them. The cross is that which has confounded the demons and made them flee in terror. And, and terror was, was generally the idea here. One of the odd dynamics of the Hypatia story is the way it has been used for polemical purposes since the death of the philosopher in the 5th century. Just a few examples, a popular 19th century novel by Anglican clergyman Charles Kingsley uses the death of Hypatia to attack Catholics. And this echoes earlier attacks on Catholicism by enlightened figures, enlightenment figures such as Voltaire. The 2009 film Agora represents the monks and clergy as swarthy, bearded, with their heads covered in a way that cites imagery of the Taliban. And so religious intolerance becomes racialized in a way that equates Hypatia's 5th century foes with the U.S.'s 21st century enemies in its war on terror. If Hypatia was the first to be branded a demon by the clergy of Alexandria, we can see racialized Islamophobic demonization arcing back in the opposite direction centuries later. Such a conclusion might lead the listener to, you know, think that demonizing is always bad. Or in many ways, it echoes the neoliberal social doctrine of don't turn the other into an enemy. Learn to understand their ways. The unspoken premise is that all rational actors can subordinate their religion or culture to the economic interests of participating in a global free market. When the other refuses this premise, they become a problem and perhaps the functional equivalent to a demon in the neoliberal order. But for right now, I want to keep the question of whether demonizing is always bad open because I want to talk about some of the different ways it can function. Naming the demonic can do more than simply target minorities or justify acts of violence that are often associated with irrational or pre-modern thought. Uh, later on in this episode, we'll talk about David Nuremberg and his argument that violent persecution of minorities in the Middle Ages should be thought of not simply as irrational or primitive, but aligned with a kind of power, political calculation, and rationality. We can see this immediately in the case of Hypatia. Her political and cultural prominence in Alexandria is what made her such a, you know, obvious target for the Christian stormtroopers who served Cyril. This is all just to say that demonizing, even in moments that we judge to be destructively harmful, is not merely an irrational reflex. But just because it's, it's not irrational doesn't mean it's better on some moral scale. It, it just means that it's, it's more complicated than thinking about demonization as simply something primitive, which itself participates in this kind of condescending colonialist discourse. Womanist theologian Dolores Williams develops this very point in a different historical context in her influential article, The Color of Feminism or Speaking the Black Woman's Tongue, which appeared in the mid-1980s. Williams is a pioneer as a womanist thinker 
which means someone who starts from the experience of being a black woman living in a society dominated by misogyny, racism, and classism. Williams gives a name to the system that promotes white life and degrades or destroys black lives. She calls it demonarchy, that is, the rule of demons. Demonarchy is the, quote, collective expression of white government in relation to black women. That means it's not pathological, but traditional and technological. Williams is contrasting demonarchy with the concept of patriarchy from earlier feminist analysis, which is the idea that men structure society and culture to dominate and control women. What demonarchy does is name how both white women, who according to the analysis of patriarchy being dominated and controlled by white men, contribute to and participate in the denial of life to black women and their offspring. Williams thinks about demonarchy as traditional and technological, and thus is not strictly speaking irrational, even if we want to call the racism that funds it irrational. Redlining, segregation, so-called welfare reform, mass incarceration, these official and unofficial policies and techniques of governing and killing black bodies require rational thought insofar as rational means the application of a means-ends thought process. If the purpose of the demonarchy is to promote certain forms of life while stifling and eliminating others, then it, it is rationally using certain means to meet that end. But if the demonic isn't irrational, then what does it mean to be a demon? Or to be ruled by demons? Williams' category continues to name this intersection of race, gender, class, and sexuality, and theologian Ebony Marshall Terman deploys it in a 2018 paper to expose the nature of our present political regime, both at the level of national and interpersonal politics. One of her main examples is a billboard on the highway near St. Louis, Missouri, um, that was up for a sort of, I guess, a brief amount of time, that displayed an image of President Number 45 with the words from the Gospel of John 1.14 emblazoned across his chest, and the word became flesh. This is the sort of famous pronouncement of the Incarnation. It's worth pausing on this image for just a second. The president in the image appears to be celebrated at once as a proponent of this word made flesh, that is Christ. And of course, the the slogan behind this this image is make the gospel great again. But, you know, he also seems to represent its own, a sort of unique enfleshment of supernatural power and authority, a kind of idolatrous image. It is this idea of 45 as enfleshed power that Terman sees as participating in the demonic. The demonic operates in the Apostle Paul's words, quote, according to the flesh, that is, according to the expectations and values of the world. But at the same time, Paul writes in Ephesians that, quote, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities, spiritual wickedness. What the demonarchy does is assume natural form and even the pretense of divine power. It pretends to be the divine, but falsely translates infinite power into the form of a visible political project, which then, quote, confirms itself through the destruction of other forms of life. Paul Tillich's description of evil, itself influenced by Kierkegaard, informs this account and seems to evacuate the demonic of any supernatural meaning and instead replaces that with a destructive, if also ambitious, mode of being. It's interesting to see the meaning of the demonic and the practice of demonization being reworked so that it does not unmask some schlocky horror movie monster, but instead describes a particular sort of relationship that can obtain between human beings and God. Terman writes that under the condition of unrelenting demonarchy, quote, white women and men are theological problems for black women and their families, end quote. This takes me back to my original question. Is demonization ever productive or positive? Or does its use cause more problems than it's worth by representing certain kinds of human beings as evil incarnate? Truman writes about the demonic as both something very human, political systems, cults of personality, homicidal social policies, yet as something that is not merely flesh and blood, but instead represents powers and principalities. It is at once very human and very inhuman. Williams' description of the demonarchy captures this tension and shows us, I think, that the demonic is the social and historical momentum, gravity, and longevity of profoundly harmful social arrangements between human beings.
Another way to think about that is that racism, misogyny, ableism, and classism are not just prejudices in someone's head, but are forces that take on a life of their own in the various institutions that structure our lives. One individual's self-scrutiny about personal blind spots and prejudices on its own cannot desegregate schools or impact the postnatal mortality rate among black women. It's the systematic and structural quality of violence that constitute the demonic. Perhaps this brings us something resembling an answer to the question raised above. Can demonizing be good? Williams and Terman use it in a very particular context, the black church and the adjacent world of academic womanist theology. We don't see these thinkers calling for spiritual warfare against the current administration and op-eds. Contrast this with the supporters of the word-made-flesh Trump billboard who praise 45 for fighting against the invasion of foreigners and the left's war on Christianity. There's demonization, and then there's demonization. The version deployed by Williams and Terman creates connections between conflict narratives in Christian scripture, which center on exercising demons, and the concrete situation of black women in the U.S. today. Demonizing thus translates the demonology of the New Testament into a particular social and racial context and make it relevant and usable. But it also updates the concept of the demonic to reflect new understandings of evil as socially, economically, and culturally produced, to borrow a phrase from another womanist ethicist, Emily Towns. Both Williams and Terman avoid denouncing individuals as demons, speaking instead of a broader system of demonarchy. The demonic is the gargantuan momentum of damaged and damaging institutions that finds its release in particular situations. Even Terman's analysis of the billboard avoids the obvious move of labeling the president as a demon. The demonic instead applies to the idolatrous visual rhetoric on display on the billboard. Finally, naming the contemporary social order as demonic for these thinkers does not involve a violent purge of the demons, but instead a kind of exorcism. To be honest, I'm not really sure exactly what that looks like, but one way I imagine it is the loud denunciation of the culture of silence and indulgence propping up the racist hierarchy of U.S. society. It's what ancient philosophers would term parahesia, the frank, open, and often confrontational telling of truths. Exercising the demonarchy might mean truth-telling that forces the monstrous founding legacies of the U.S. out into the open while blocking off any retreat. In these terms, Williams and Terman have managed to use demonization in a particular context for a particular audience to wrestle creatively against the necropolitics of the U.S. In this episode, we spent a good deal of time discussing instances in the history of Christianity where demonization aids other less righteous causes. It would seem that more often than not, demonization aims less at speaking truth to power and more at using power to suppress those who would speak. In this episode, we will continue to discuss Hypatia, drawing on Catherine Nixie's book, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. The subtitle basically says it all. Ancient classical religion gets demonized as part of the opening move in its demolition. Next, we zoom in on a debate in the study of medieval Europe between the scholars R.I. Moore and David Nuremberg to understand how discourses of demonization instigate violence against minorities. After that, Travis and I talk through the provocative argument of Silvia Federici in her book Caliban and the Witch. Federici argues that we have to think about the emergence of capitalism in Europe and the Americas to really understand what's going on with witch hunts in the 16th and 17th centuries. And then we take it back to the womanist account of demonarchy to discuss William's essay, The Color of Feminism, or Speaking the Black Woman's Tongue, along with Terman's paper, Powers and Principalities, a black womanist interrogation of demonarchy 25 years hence. Thank you for being here. So Klaus, why does the history of the devil matter? Does it relate to broader histories? So, I mean, at this point, we're on our last episode of season one. So I really hope it does matter. You know, how you chart the importance of the emergence of the figure of the devil depends a lot on what matters to you. If you care about the history of ideas or the history of Christianity, I think we've shown in previous episodes that topics like the nature of God, the nature of humanity, and especially free will, cosmology, or the nature of the cosmos and eschatology, you know, things concerning the final moments, the end times, 
all these things are affected by the history of the devil. Like he's, he's always there, you know, he's, he's always there snorting and stamping his, his hooved feet and stuff. For sure. If you're more interested in the history of persecution of minorities, then this is the episode for you. In our episode on dualisms, we touched on the idea that there's a relationship between seeing the world in a dualist black and white and drawing the line between good and evil in a way that keeps you and your group in the good category while labeling anyone different from you as evil. Travis, what do you think about this question of the history of persecution? Well, first of all, I have to say, I'm quite pleased that you think we picked a good topic for our pod. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do think that both dualism and the history of the devil help us see how particular theological commitments color the way people both imagine and actually interact with other people, and in particular, minority groups. Theology at its worst, as we, I think we all know, mm. can provide a lens through which others become not just bad, but evil. Not just evil, but demonic. Not just demonic, but Satan himself. That's progress. You're making progress. Though. Oh, progress, right. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> forward, forward. <laughs> Uh, So one place to begin here is to think about the early centuries of Christianity and in particular, the conversion of the Roman Empire. Klaus, was the conversion of the empire a cute look or nah? Yeah, man, it was was not cute. We were talking about (laughs) massive destruction of architecture, beautiful temples, sculpture, massive tomes of literature, art and philosophy on a massive scale across Europe and the Near East, to say nothing of the violence, which includes rape, murder, torture. I could go on. Perhaps we could think about Hypatia as a case in point, since her story brings together Christian antagonism to philosophy, political struggles in Alexandria between Christian and pagan factions, Christian misogyny, and the violence of the transition from what gets called paganism, or we think of as as sort of ancient Roman or Greek religion, to Christianity. Yeah, I do love this story, even though I realize it is awful. You love it. I mean, like, what's what's with, it's terrible. What's wrong with you? Well, okay, lots of things, um, but so hear me out. So (laughs) (laughs) speaking as a practicing Christian and a queer person, I think it's a helpful corrective to that narrative that Christianity is a peaceful, loving religion and therefore better than other religions that are deemed violent. So Cyril's gang, right? For example, the stormtroopers, as you mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. in the pod, were Christians. And it's not as if Christianity is not the religion fueling violence and oppression in the 21st century too, or one of the religions that fuels violence and oppression in the 21st century, right? Mm -hmm. If Christians want to be about love, justice, and peace, as some of them claim to, as some of us claim to, then we need to, first of all, own up to all of our history, especially the history of demonization. That makes a lot of sense. Cyril's gang you referred to as stormtroopers earlier in this episode, were, after all, Christians. And Christianity is one of the religions fueling violence and oppression in the 21st century, too. So if Christians want to be about love, justice, and peace, then we need to, first of all, own up to all of our history, especially the history of demonization. Klaus, what are some of the ways historians have charted this idea? Well, this may come as a shock, but as is often the case, historians don't all agree. In this case, the dispute is over the relationship between the history of ideas about how minorities are evil on the one hand and violence against minorities on the other. Some, like Robert Moore, claim a relatively direct relationship here. As the rhetoric against a particular group, say Jews or lepers, heats up, we can track a similar rise in acts of mass violence and persecution in the form of pogroms, expulsions, etc. Travis, you seem to enjoy David Nirenberg's book on the subject. What's he, what's he driving at in uh, Communities of Violence? Yeah, I really did enjoy the book. Um, Nirenberg points out that the same rhetoric can exist in two places, but that violence and persecution might emerge only in one of them, or let's say, uh, at different levels, right? And Mm -hmm. therefore, we have to track such histories, not merely as a result of an exchange of particular ideas and rhetoric, as if that's like the whole story, but instead as responding to local conditions, political, economic, and otherwise, that help explain why and how such ideas translate to action. 
Nirenberg also helps us question the meanings of violence itself by pointing to political philosophy coming out of the post-Enlightenment that claims that wars, except for wars of obliteration, which are in fact numerous, quote, are forms of interaction that seek to establish relations, not destroy them. So like war itself isn't just about, isn't always just about complete annihilation, but it's about a reconfiguration of relationships between groups. That would be like, I'm, you know, France and you're Aragon and we go to war and the aim is not to, for me to wipe Aragon off the map, but to show my military strength such that I can take over part of your territory perhaps, right? We're establishing maybe a new border or a new relationship. Something is changing there, but that's still a form of relationality, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, as you point out, these wars do exist, where the object is actually to just wipe the kingdom of France off the map or or a particular population, say. Right. It gets and it gets fuzzy too. I mean, like uh US imperialism in the late 19th, early 20th century, you know, seeked, you know, sought to to have these new relationships between the US and and countries like the Philippines or, you know, Cuba or Puerto Rico. Um and the results could be very deadly, especially in the case of the Philippines. So you, you, there, there's a little bit of blurring, but yeah, I, I see what he's getting at, you know, that there's this, mm. there's this way in which war and violence is about maintaining a set of relationships, changing a set of relationships, et cetera. Yeah, and by relationship, we're definitely not talking here about like friendship, for example. Right, right, Relationship right, sounds right. so happy-go-lucky, and that's, I, I think, very much not what's at work here, but yeah. Right, right. And so like the way he gets at this in the book is by focusing less on like mass acts of violence and more on acts of violence that arise from competition between groups. Um, ritualized stonings of Jews during Holy Week in medieval Aragon, for example, that aim not so much to kill all the Jews, but to maintain certain power relations to enforce a toll on coexistence that historians have done a fair bit to romanticize in the myth of convivencia. As Nuremberg writes, quote, violence drew its meaning from coexistence, not in opposition to it. I think that choice is part of what lets him see violence differently. Otherwise, you know, it's hard to reimagine the meaning of like genocide. Yeah, that seems pretty straightforward. Um, And just a note on convivencia, right? That's this, historians have really propagated this story looking back to this region, the Iberian Peninsula, where modern Spain and Portugal are located, to say, look, in the Middle Ages, there was this time where you had Jews, you had, you know, what what were called Moors, um, whom we would call Muslims, and Christians all living together. That's what convivencia means, right? Right. But um, the, the mythologizing comes in with, like, as if they're sort of singing kumbaya and holding hands, which is very much not what was happening. And there was, although there were remarkable acts of cooperation, artistic exchange, intermarriage, et cetera, there was, and beautiful art and music and poetry coming out in that time period, translations, et cetera. Um, There were, you know, there were also um, acts of violence. There were also, there were were signs that power is always being exercised through these, these, again, I'm going to use this word relations. It sounds happy, but. Right. It's like, you know, relation can be like so vague just the point that human beings live together in some form of contact and those relationships can be managed in different ways or take different forms that's a good way of clarifying the the myth of convivencia for sure okay great so getting back to nuremberg then what did you what do you sort of make of the book and the argument sort of taken as a whole do you do you think this is a helpful lens through which to view these instances of violence and and how we interpret them I mean, I think one of the things I appreciate the most, and it's, it's, you know, it's like his main point, but it's making violence and the ideas that go with it or fund it or accompany it less monolithic. He really attends to particular contexts in a way that puts agency and responsibility and intelligibility back into the hands of actual people instead of just making huge blanket claims about certain aspects of, uh, of Christian discourse or what's going on in European mythology or paranoia or whatever you know so it makes it way more traceable and a lot less vague and i think that's important one thing i would ask you about is one of the what sort of the things that goes along with that is making making violence less irrational 
like mm. could, could you like explain a little bit like what he's he's doing with rationality and irrationality in, in this book sure <laughs> actually no i definitely could not but i do want to say something about what you were saying before and then i'm going to volley that one back at you so okay i wanted to say that looking back then at the work of a historian like Moore, for example, who we talked about a little bit earlier, who yeah. plots along this idea of the the development of a persecuting society in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I want to think about whether or not Nuremberg is really reading that fairly. I do think, yes, that Moore is making an argument that's enormous and global. Well, that exceeds these borders, right? That refuses the local in favor of meanings and explanations of acts of mass violence that transcend boundaries, et cetera. I, you know, I think he's right to question that. I think, and I think the technique that he uses is, is good. But yeah. the argument and more is actually the d- development of certain techniques of persecution, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. him correctly. And so I think it's possible that rather than ascribing a single meaning, which he probably, you know, falls too much into, and, and therefore the Nuremberg critique is right. What if we can keep parts of that argument as we think about the meanings of this violence and say, well, perhaps what happened are certain ways of thinking and imagining that were transferred back and forth between groups. So as we move from the heretic to the homosexual, or as he calls them, or the sodomite, which I think is the better medieval word to think about this, mm-hmm. to the, the leper, to the Jew, and beyond, are there kind of techniques that are kept or rhetorical strategies that are exchanged as we move from context to context? That's a question I would sort of pose and wonder about. But you were saying you wanted to talk a little bit more about Nuremberg and the function of rationality in this, these explanations of violence and oppression. Yeah, I mean, I think what it kind of goes together with uh, what you were just saying, just that the point is that um, these, if you give the agency to these ideas, discourses, mythologies, et cetera, then, and especially if you look at them from sort of a contemporary point of view, you know, sort of paranoia about wells being poisoned and sexual impurity and these things. And you're like, mm. you know, many scholars actually of a sort of enlightenment uh, temperament and outlook would label these things as irrational. And so if you put all the power and agency in the discourses, then it looks like these people are just behaving insanely. And so the work of the historian becomes like doing this sort of massive society-wide analysis of the unconscious or the collective unconscious. Mm, I see. So yeah, so I think that's one of Nierbeck's problems. But I do think what you said before, like, sure, like it would be, it's a little, it's a little too precious to not sort of pay enough due, give enough due to the the force that the ideas and the stories have. I mean, in the, the same set of violence doesn't happen in one kingdom or province and its neighbor but it seems that the the ideas and the stories and the discourse does something right right how it's how it's tapped into i think is perhaps something that nuremberg does well at talking about right yeah yeah, you know his argument is that well okay the discourse is out there but like that doesn't translate necessarily to violence so what's the point like how far can you really get if that's all you're looking at if you're refusing the local Right. Um, and these other and that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. But then I think the natural response is like, yeah, it doesn't translate directly into violence, but it sure doesn't help with the, it sure doesn't help make things easier either. You know? Right. It, um, it, in many ways, I think the point remains that you need some kind of rhetoric, even if it doesn't explain the entire phenomenon. It, it does yeah, serve a function. Yeah. 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 Which I don't that, think that he would No, I don't think so either. But it's still, I think, an important point to bring up. Okay. Let's talk about witches in early modern Europe and the Americas. What's the relationship between the devil and witches, Klaus? Witches in early modern Europe, European myth get their power from the devil through a legal agreement, the pact, um, with, with Satan. Sorry, well, of course, with lawyers would be involved, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Sorry um, to all of our fans who are lawyers, we love you. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, does the, and so does the devil. And so does um, the devil, as you may know. <laughs> Yeah. Details vary, but you sign on the dotted line and 
or perform some ritual action, usually in kissing the devil, subkauda, or under the tail. I'll let you imagine that for yourselves. Mm-hmm. And perform various inversions of Christian ritual at the witch's Sabbath, like saying the mass backwards. Damn. <laughs> Drinking the blood of Christian babies rather than transubstantiated wine. That's a pretty big one. Witch oh. hunts are also important in broader histories of marginalization that we've been talking about this whole time. Yep, scholars are pretty much in agreement that no women were flying around on broomsticks in early modern Europe. Get the fuck out. I know, right? But that women, and to a much lesser extent, men, were burned at the stake in the hundreds of thousands during this period. So we got a lot of theories, unsurprisingly. We're talking about historians here again. So we've got all these theories advanced as to why these executions took place. Suspicion of pre-Christian European religious practices that included healing, divination, etc. That's one explanation. There's, so there's pagan, another one. Like, get, pa- like latent paganism. And, oh, and exactly. Like the remainder. Which, yes. Did you know that like Iceland took forever to get um, missionized and sort of converted to Christianity? Yeah, so they I, had like a really long Middle Ages, yeah. apparently. It's so why they still. That's why they. That's why they talk like Vikings to this day. You know, I mean, <laughs> you're, we're learning so much through this. This pod is yeah, amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. But that, for that reason, the, some of the sort of written evidence you get, there's like really interesting ways to look into pre-Christian religious practices, etc. Through if you happen to know medieval, Icelandic, then you you have this special window. Anyway. Um, yeah. where where were we? Various theories. Yeah. Oh right, yeah, we're yeah, so right. there's also so we were talking about the theories. Um of why these executions why? took place, right? We've got yeah. the pre-Christian religious practices that we were just talking about, but also another, another theory, the advent of the scientific revolution and concomitant rejection of nature and women. That's another mm. way to explain, or like the, in a very few words, another theory for why these executions took place. Um, and then there's Silvia Federici's intriguing thesis that the rise of capitalism and the fall of communitarian forms of living that were mainly sustained by women, that, that, that this was the reason, right, that we have these executions and that this rhetoric gets put into play. What do you make of these explanations, Klaus? Well, I mean, especially with the, with the Federici thesis, um, I think there's a lot to chew on there. And it's, it's like, it's a bold thesis and it's, it's certainly worth interrogating further. So I want to get into it a bit more. Um, Federici writes that European witch hunting, uh, and to quote her, was an attack on women's resistance to the spread of capitalist relations and the power of women had gained by virtue of their sexuality, their control over reproduction, and their ability to heal. Um, so, you know, this, the attack of witch accusations is a way of unsettling or unseating the role that women played in pre-capitalist uh, European political economy. Other scholars have looked at how witch hunts were an attack on herbalist healers and female sexuality, and this sort of really plays into her, her thesis. So like, what does witch hunting actually have to do with capitalism, do we think? Okay, so Federici describes the rise of capitalism, and more particularly Marxist term from Das Kapital, primitive accumulation, which just refers to the early stage when the owning class acquired the means of production labor, et cetera. It's not, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. When you it's, not, it's not cute, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so she's, she's looking at this and she's saying this isn't just the acquisition of capital and cheap labor, but it's a more complex creation of divisions among that class that would prevent resistance binding together in a kind of union, mm-hmm. right, to resist mm-hmm. the power, right, to mm-hmm. this new economic and political regime. Namely, the intensification of divisions of gender, which she never thinks in more complicated terms than men and women. Um, true, which is true. not my favorite, just because I think gender, not sort of the men and the women, but thinking gender would be, would yeah. be a fascinating yeah. way to pull this apart. But she also talks about race. To her credit, she doesn't make this just a European story. This is also about, very much about contact with, of Europeans with indigenous peoples of the Americas. Mm-hmm. So I think that part's really cool and interesting. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, and she I means she's, she's right to just draw attention to like the amazing coincidence of witch hunts, which people associate with the medieval period, but are actually an early modern Mm -hmm. phenomenon. Um, And the whole like uh, periodization of early modern versus medieval, it's a little fuzzy. I mean, 
you know, there's a lot of continuity and, and, and flow between what we think of as medieval and early modern, you know, societies and cultures. Um, but at this transition period, we have witch hunts. We have the beginning of concentrations of capital in these cities like Augsburg or Amsterdam or London. And then you also have early colonization. And, I, you know, the, for me, this is why there's, you know, even if she's wrong about certain things, like, like hell yeah, like what a coincidence, right? Yes, absolutely. No, I think it's great that she's thinking all these things together. A lot of the other scholarship really keeps it to either early modern Europe or all the books on Salem. And that's kind of, that's kind of it. There's no tying together of, the, of what's happening in Central America and South America, which is, right. yeah, right. it's, I mean, it's an intriguing thesis. Right. So, okay. So we've talked a little bit about this economic angle of witchcraft. Let's talk about the sex and gender part. So women, as Federici rightly points out, were much more commonly targeted as witches than men, at least in European contexts and in New England. But what about the devil's maleness, right? Why is that so important within the world of witch hunting in early modern Europe and that of the demonization and colonization of Native American peoples? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And part of the answer, I think, is it was part of thinking sexuality through a, a more repressive lens, mm-hmm. drawing from, frankly, the worst of the Christian tradition on the body, desire, and sexuality. So the devil is male and exaggeratedly so. You know, the guy, this dude, he's got two penises because early modern Christians, like their medieval predecessors, associated lust with the lower faculties of the human being that were the most animal and least spiritual. So yeah, double the dicks. Uh, right. <laughs> lust was human, but in the worst sense of the word, something to be overcome through devotion. That has nothing to do with, with lust at all, right? Um, and so the devil's maleness was, first of all, identified with his sexuality rather than just his gender. That enabled a number of associations. For European women, the charge of promiscuity was perhaps the gravest sin imaginable and therefore diabolical. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Worst and thing pa- it could possibly be. Yeah, I mean, like, this shit is demonic. It's not even demonic. It's diabolical. You yeah, gotta, yep. gotta, le- you gotta level up. Worse, worse. Level up, level up. Yeah. And it is, this paired well in a heteronormative way with the lustiness of the devil and his notorious horniness. Yes, pun intended. Sorry, moms of the pod. Which perhaps had an antecedent in the likewise horned and horny god Pan. Yeah, you know, you see some of those uh, frescoes from 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 uh, Pompeii that get uncovered from the ashes. And, Ooh, um, right. Yeah, those are Pan, Pan's doing some shit. You know, like yeah, with, he's with, busy. With, yeah, with the goats. Um, so, for indigenous peoples of the Americas, the devil's maleness and lusty character enabled non-European sexual practices, or what Europeans like fantasized about those sexual practices. Mm, yeah, there we go. Yeah, there we go. And the notorious gateway drugs of singing and dancing to be considered as evidence of the diabolical nature, not only of the people, but also of their gods. Right. And that gets back to this idea we talked about before, where the in Europe, for example, the Greek and Roman gods were explained by early Christian thinkers as, well, obviously those are demons, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That That same technique happens again when you have contact between the European, the Christian Europeans and the native peoples of the Americas. Well, obviously your gods are devils and that just explains everything. It's so, it's so convenient, you know, like let the truth set you free. Everything else is a demon. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, But I see what you're saying about how this sexualization of the deep of the devil really tells us so much about how Christianity is being imagined and what the worst sort of this this underbelly of Christianity what's the worst thing you could be what's the worst way you could act well that's the diabolical and so the symbol of evil in the devil gets you know the two penises gets this relationship with witches where he's having sex with the witches in these you know midnight sabbaths etc and it all starts to align in this well nefarious way what I, what I, the thing I like about the de- the, the devil sex of the witches Sabbaths is well. That, first, I mean, what's not to like? Well, I, so I know. There's yeah, that. yeah. For start for, to be clear, um, but but also, this is there's also the insistence that there's all this lust that leads up to it or is engaged in it, but there's also this insistence by like the scholastic demonologists that no one actually gets any pleasure from this at all. Right. 
know, it, you know, it's really, um, it really takes the life out of the whole thing where you have like this sort of this fantasy of like this, this lust and all the sex and this or these orgies, but it's like, they're like, but no one even in, no one had an orgasm once, you know, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> which seems like such a strange thing. To, I mean, like, Yo, often like, the details that Scholastics focus on, let's be real, are not like, are, you know, surprisingly you know, strange. However, I would say that I would not suspect them of being very interested in describing pleasure, even in this sort of evil way. Or on the other hand, that, that sexual pleasure is so often demonized in those texts that it would make sense for them to be like, oh yeah, it's pleasurable and that's bad. Yeah, exactly. That seems like an obvious move. And then it's so, it's so interesting. And we, I'm sure we, we have another episode. We can talk about this when we get more into, into uh, the witch hunts. It's, it's, it's so interesting that they make that denial, I think, pretty consistently. Yeah. Okay, so what about the relationship between European witchcraft and its, you know, the fantasies of devil worship in the New World? Yeah, this is one of the reasons I like the book so much. So both of these phenomena are accusations that tell us more about the accuser than the accused. Federici, you know, tries to paint them with the same stroke, arguing that they are fundamentally part of the transition to capitalism. But I would argue that at the very least, the divisions that were created to fracture the working class along lines of gender and class are different in several ways. For one, European women are not forced into capitalist labor, though it's true that their non-capitalist labor was denigrated. Mm. While in the Americas, men and women alike were coerced into labor to support the new system of colonization, that is, the wholesale economic exploitation of the colonized people. Second, the new development of race in the Americas admits a complex hierarchical system from Spanish to Creole, American born of full Spanish blood, for example, that's Creole, mm, to yeah. mestizo, right, which is mixed, to indio, which is a native person, and from negro to mulatto, right? We've got all these kind of complex gradations of race that are happening there in that setting. So no such gradation of gender was at least apparent in Europe, although there were complex forms of gendering in the so-called new world that are not strictly reducible to economics. The feminization, for example, of the native peoples perhaps is a form of denigration, yes, but the hypersexualization of people of African descent, both feminization and masculinization, is this really about economics still? Well, I mean, that's what Federici claims. According to this racist logic, enslaved people were more highly gendered and sexualized and thereby, quote, closer to nature than whites who considered themselves masters of self-control due to their espousal of reason. And should, should, we, should we say- a moment. <laughs> you got through it with a straight face. Okay. Yeah. She writes, quote, for the definition of blackness and femaleness as marks of bestiality and irrationality conformed with the exclusion of women in Europe and women and men in the colonies from the social contract implicit in the wage and the consequent naturalization of exploitation. Oh, that's a mouthful. Okay. Yeah. Does, does that right? Is she right about that? Well, I mean, there are certainly similarities here between the treatment of indigenous American and black peoples, which by the way, side note, Federici doesn't really distinguish here, um, but who have a very different though overlapping history with indigenous folks, of course, and that of European witches. So similarities between these groups, but in general, I find the comparison to be a little bit overdrawn. Um, it's not that the argument isn't effective and helpful. I'm glad this book exists for sure, but this is one area where I think that, you know, more work could be done. Yeah, yeah. To state the obvious, European women were not enslaved, and though they were burned at the stake, by and large, right? And though mm. they were burned at the stake, I take Nuremberg's point that we shouldn't focus so heavily on these acts of violence to the exclusion of more mundane data that give us, you know, a picture of everyday relations, mm -hmm. conflicts, you know, right. back to that relationality that we were talking about before. European women were subjugated, sometimes brutally, and lost many of the freedoms they had enjoyed in the Middle Ages. This is not comparable to what happened to native or certainly black peoples in the Americas. Federici doesn't claim that these are the same, to be clear, but that both forms of exploitation are at heart economic. Personally, I think it's more complicated. For one, I think the colonizers believed they were better than indigenous people because the indigenous people were not Christian. I get the irony here, of course, 
Um, but I don't think that means we can dismiss the beliefs of the colonizers as cynical or as a mere cover for their greed. Mm -hmm. Well, then again, greed is a lot easier to explain and understand than theologically inflected racism. There are resources within Christianity to see indigenous and black people as equals, bearing the image and likeness of God and worthy of love, justice, and respect. What we get instead is the noble savage myth with all its inconsistencies. Were non-white people closer to nature? Okay, then why are they supposedly sodomites sinning against nature? I thought sodomy wasn't natural. You know, like it's, it's, it breaks down. Yeah. The key to understanding sodomy is not according to the logic of the category of the natural or the bestial, but I would argue along the axis of sexuality, knowledge, religious identity. Namely, that it is proof that the native people have not converted to Christianity because if they had, they would not practice sex in this way. Right. They're super bad Christians, in other words. Right. That's one way of looking at, I, I think, closer to the meanings of, of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we believe the colonizer's rhetoric at all, and we should be suspicious of it to a certain degree, but maybe not dismiss it outright, then their right. persecution of the colonized people was justified by their belief in the devil. I think it's easy to kind of skip and see from a 21st century perspective the idea that religion is always already an excuse and not mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. real for the people who are practicing and believing in the, this religion. It's just easy to jump there. And I think that that, that move it gets me too soon in this book. So mm -hmm. these yeah. people were devil worshipers, right? It was the identification of their gods with demons that justified their mission to convert the native people to Christianity. And this the Marxist interpretation, in my view, seems to ignore or dismiss this idea entirely. Mm -hmm. So, okay, how similar in the end would you say that this American devil worship is to European witchcraft, right? Because she pulls these things together and says that, you know, because European witchcraft is related to the devil, you know, you've got these, we talked about the devil's pact, et cetera. There's this relationship there. And we have devil worship that's being seen in the native religious practices. Do you think this kind of hold water, holds water, this comparison? Well, I mean, I think the point which it does, if we th we're thinking with Federici, is like both European witchcraft and American devil worship are both fantasies of Europeans. Like mm. neither of them are real. Good. You know, I think yeah. I think that's that's the point that is the, the strong comparison. Obviously, there's a huge difference between what Aztecs, Mayans, Incas are doing in their religious culture versus what pre-Christian survival female healers, midwives, etc. Like there's a, there's a world of difference between those things. But this concept of female witchcraft was imported into the Americas in a couple of instances, famously mm -hmm. in Salem, Massachusetts, but also to Peru, where Andean women under torture confessed to packs of the devil flying through the air, etc. The rhetoric seems to have carried influence in both directions to and from Europe and the Americas. And I, and I think it's, like, it's sort of like a circular confirmation bias thing, you know, it's sort of a circular, yeah. well, you know, because uh, Federici points out that, you know, this idea of the devil didn't exist. It was completely projected onto their culture in ways that were totally untrue and incoherent in original context. It took a generation or two before women start confessing to under torture, of course, because they wouldn't have said it before because it just didn't make any sense. But at least by this point, under torture, they could go through the motions that the inquisitors were looking for, right? And ironically, this is the proof of their thorough Christianization. Oh, yeah, not, right, yeah. not proof of the supposedly diabolical nature of their native religious practices, to the contrary, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, so the tracing the importance of the devil as symbol is, is kind of a topsy-turvy ride here. Okay, so let's think about what the scholars we've discussed so far, Federici, the Marxist feminist on witchcraft and devil worship in Europe and the Americas, and then uh, David Nirenberg's scholarship on anti-Semitism and violence in medieval Europe on the other. Let's like put these two together for a second. How sure. might we th think through Federici's argument while keeping in mind Nirenberg's maybe thesis as a corrective? In other words, yeah, yeah. how would this argument about the meanings of witch hunting as primarily economic and gendered fare if we were to take a more localized contextual approach along the lines of Nuremberg. Yeah, I mean, it's, of course, it's like hard to say without getting into the nitty gritty of the sources. 
But uh, I would say that the points of reference that Federici uses are like with more moments of mass violence, you know, witch hunts. Right, right. If we hypothesize that witchcraft is at its heart a part of a gendered history of economics, then we would need a more nuanced approach. Does the enclosure of private property impinge always and everywhere across Europe in the same way on the lives of the poor? The answer is no. Uh, but that's Federici's <laughs> claim. Yeah. But one would expect at least some local variation. And of course, like the, 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 you know, the strongest evidence and the sort of, you can see her cherry picking a bit here, is with Scotland and the British Isles. And uh, it's definitely not the same on the continent. Marxism is often invested in these sort of large meta-narratives because they encourage collective action. They, they sort of help you identify with you know the, the class that you're in and its history. So it makes sense that Federici's approach would emphasize the big picture, sort of the macro economic, macro historical societal picture. Absolutely, and I think when we get the collapse of certain distinctions, finer distinctions between these groups of oppressed people, you know, as we move across space and time, uh, but particularly, yeah, um, space with regard to these geographies and these different peoples in, in quite different situations, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, I think there's a purpose for drawing those connections. And yet, as a historian, I kind of want to pull back and say, maybe all oppression is connected, but all oppression is not the same. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, just to go back to your, your critique of what she's doing, I think you can still see like, oh, right, like the ways in which Native peoples in the Americas are being sexualized and being demonized and the ways in which pre-Christian survivals or, or sites of, of female power in medieval and early modern Europe are being targeted. You can see these things as all being related. That doesn't mean they're all the same, right? You can see them as being like, okay, like these are different moments in which control of the means of production, control of the human body, the ways in which those power interests are being manifest without sort of drawing this kind of like sloppy equal signs between them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of our job as historians. When we suspect that something is all one meta narrative that sort of can explain widely different phenomena, we all, that's a moment where you need to kind of step back and say, am I falling for something that's seductive as a narrative, as opposed to representing the best I can from the sources, how meanings differ across these different contexts? Okay, let's switch directions for a second now and, and talk about two womanist scholars, Dolores S. Williams and Ebony Marshall Terman. If you're not yet familiar with the term, womanism is a word coined by Alice Walker that has come to refer to a social theory and in many cases like theological reflections that are based on the lived experiences of women of color, in particular black women, and aimed at their flourishing in spite of the intertwined forces of racism and sexism. Dolores Williams wrote this fascinating essay in which she articulates the concept of demonarchy. So I'm glad we're talking about this particular, about womanism in particular, and this essay. It's a kind of critical response to feminism's patriarchy, right? Which Williams notes, fails to account for the ways white feminism in particular fails black women. Demonarchy describes the way white women collude with white men often, and this is key, through the prism of white-controlled American institutions. In other words, we're talking about systems here more so than we're talking about individuals um, and this collusion of the institutions in oppressing Black women. Williams uses the concept to point to the vast difference between what she calls the patriarchally derived privileged oppression of white women compared to Black women's demonically derived annihilistic oppression. So let's talk about what that distinction is. Yeah, it's, it, seems, it seems really important. And let's, let's try to get at why she uses demon, you know, specifically to describe this oppression Good. in, in yeah. the latter instance. It's not just a matter of degree, I think, though that is some part of it. Uh, replacing patri or father with demon captures the evil of the forces at play. And to, to quote her, violence, violation, retardation, and death, which are used as, quote, instruments of social control by white male and white female ruled systems. Yeah, so moving from that patri of patriarchy to that demon of demonarchy. Yeah, I think we're really getting at why this is, why she chooses that word demon and what's at stake for her. So furthermore, which 
apparently is a word I say now, the word demonarchy also helps account for the Black church's proper response to these forms of oppression. So it fits here too, right? So you've got the shouts, the rhythms, and the music of worship that become a way of casting out demons, very much after the model of Jesus's own exorcisms, which we've talked about in earlier episodes. Mm, indeed. But here you know, not aimed at the particular demon, you know, in this person who needs to be cast out in the Jesus-y way, right? But we, instead, it's aimed at the socio-political spiritual forces that are colluding to, quote, destroy the very lives of Black women and Black peoplehood. Mm -hmm. So here, I mean, for me, this was chilling, right? You've got Black Lives Matter circa 1986, very eloquently put um, mm -hmm. in a way that, um clarifies what's at stake the level but also the nature of this kind of oppression and who's at stake who wins from this i i feel like it's um I, i'm not surprised that 25 years later you get this response from ebony marshall terman because the it's a powerful concept right um so what do you make of the terman essay that considers the legacy of this essay um and of her more mm. famous works yeah and i think one of the things like as you say it's sort of chilling that we hear the concepts of Black Lives Matter being articulated in the 1980s. And I think that's something you hear a lot of activists and thinkers uh, who go deep into this work for a long time have been saying is that like, this is, these ideas are not, are not new, right? They seem, they seem very new, you know, on social media or whatever, but like, you know, um, activists and, and thinkers in the womanist tradition have been, have been saying them for, for decades now. Um, right. And that's to be just totally clear. That's my privilege and my whiteness that, that are showing <laughs> just to, to name it. No, but yeah, but I mean, I think just experientially, you know, when you are, when we're sort of dealing with the, you know, the United States and the broader world, which is thinking about police violence in the summer of 2020. Right. And you read, you know, Dolores Williams and it, it is, it is chilling um, because the, you know, those voices were there all the time. And it's, it's odd to hear someone from a decade or a year in which, you know, like I was a, a small child speaking very clearly and accurately about the exact situation that we find ourselves in historically speaking, not very much time later, but in terms of our experiences, a good bit of time later. Right, right. But you, yeah, so in terms of thinking about the legacy, I mean, like there's like this part that she, that she, that Terman says in, in this, uh, this paper, um, she says like, you know, quote, the fact that 53% of white women voters voted for Donald Trump, that is that white women voters overwhelmingly vote against Sisters in the Wilderness, and this is Dolores Williams, the famous, famous book, Sisters in the Wilderness, right. casting the lives and life chances of black and brown women and their families further out into the desert. It is clear that the prophetic import of Williams' work 25 years hence cannot be disputed. Yeah, that was, I feel like she brings this forward in ways that are I mean, the task itself maybe wasn't that hard to do, but woo, it's hard hitting here. Or what about later in the essay? She writes, Dolores Williams told us then who white women are right now, racist and oft committed to upholding the patriarchy even, and I dare say, especially when they wear safety pins and pink pussy hats. I mean, she is taking names here, right? This reminds me of this thing at my university where faculty who complete this, these like short trainings on how to be inclusive of various groups like undocumented people or LGBTQ people, they give you these stickers at the end of the training to put on your bulletin board outside your office. And I don't mm. mean to totally demean this. There's something helpful here so that the idea is that when students, when the poop hits the fan, the students know who they can go to. And that I think is useful. But unfortunately, the sort of underside of that is that it can be a prime example of virtue signaling and performative allyship, very much in line of how the, the worst part of what a safety pin or a pink pussy hat can do. You know, are you really there for me in a way that's not just about making you look good? Well, and especially when it comes out of a training, an institutional training, it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, this, has become, this, the, the, this, this currency has become a bit devalued. And students will find their ways to mentors through their experiences and through basically a sense of whether they can trust them or not or relate to them. But yeah, just sort of take it back to, to the, the woman of theologians here. Uh, Terman also ponders William's assertion that in the face of demonarchic white powers and male principalities, black women wrestle 
and she reads this with Brittany Cooper's categorization of black women's rage as eloquent and symphonic. I really appreciate how she like turns Williams' essay into a call to action for those hearing the truths of Williams' works. There's a lot of work here to do. Yes, there is. And speaking of work to do, it's not too late to phone bank, to drive people to the polls. You know, like make donations, harass your local elected officials when you don't appreciate the way policies are being enacted in your communities. There's, there's a lot to do. Yeah, there are a lot of ways to be engaged. So I, I guess with that, thank you all. I can't believe this is already the last episode of the season. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it's, you know, just a huge thank you to everyone listening and please stay in touch. We're open to ideas, feedback, and ideas for future seasons or episodes. Okay, well, until then, thanks for listening. Bye. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.